Uh, if you've been with us, you know we've been in Genesis, and uh, we get to verse 18 of chapter 2, but by the time you get to verse 18 of chapter 2, uh, you see some things that have happened. In the, in the first uh, creation account, chapter 1, you see God making things day by day by day. And then chapter 2, everything is written in such a way that it shows you the relationship that man has with these three different entities. One is creation, and we see his relationship with creation is he's to tend and keep it. That there's a lot of potential there in his work, that there's rich, uh, precious metals, that there's a, a lush water source, that the vegetation is beautiful to the eye and good to the taste. So his relationship with creation is, is perfect. He loves his work day in and day out. We also see his relationship with God, that God's very personal with him and that God makes him from the dust and then breathes air into his nostrils and he comes to life so we see how tender God can be. And today we see his relationship with mankind. We see that woman is made. So we, we see his relationship with a person. So uh, let's read verse 18 through 25 and we'll see what it has for us. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken for the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The word of the Lord. I don't know if you noticed right here, but you just uh, saw a wedding take place. That's the first wedding in the Bible. It happens right here in Genesis 2. And then we see at the end of the Bible, we see another wedding. A wedding of the marriage supper of the Lamb. A wedding between Jesus, the Lamb of God, and his people, the bride. And you can understand the Bible very much by knowing what this metaphor of marriage really means. You might have a beat on what really the universe is all about by getting a beat on what marriage is all about in the scriptures. And what we see in this text and what we see throughout the scriptures is that a healthy marriage embraces two things. Diversity and unity. That's what a healthy marriage is really all about. And when you start reading verse 18... I hope that you are startled because it says that it's not good for man to be alone. If you've been with us, you know this comes on the heels of God saying, and it was good at the end of the first five days and then the middle of the sixth day of creation. It was good. And then after the second half of the sixth day of creation, he's created mankind and it says, and it was very good. So to get to verse 18, and out of God's mouth, it says, it was not good, should startle you. It departs from what the pattern that has already been established in a literary sense. It also should startle you because it says it's not good and the fall hasn't even happened. Sin hasn't entered the world. 
Yet isolation is a state that God estimates as bad for Adam. So what does God do about it? Well, he makes someone that's different from Adam. The Hebrew word is translated fit for him. In our text, in other translations, it's translated as suitable. But literally, this word fit for him or suitable means according to opposite. So God is not going to bring Adam a bro for him to be besties with, to cure his loneliness. What he's going to do is bring someone different from him. So he makes a woman. In fact, it's going to be her different difference that is going to make his work more effective. See, here's the bottom line. Adam was deficient without a woman. He needed someone with a different outlook, a different set of skills, different capacity, and that's exactly what he finds in Eve. Now, you don't see these differences teased out in detail here, but we all know how the other gender is different in more than just biology. And every time someone tries to pin it down on what those differences are, it can feel a bit reductionistic, at least it does to me. But what is true is that the diversity of the genders not just makes our lives more interesting. The diversity of the genders shouldn't just fan your curiosity. But the diversity in genders makes our work, our vocations, our missions in life more effective. See, in many ways, Adam cannot fulfill his calling. He can't have dominion over creation without Eve. Adam can't tend and keep the garden by himself. Adam can't exercise his rule over the animals without Eve. Adam cannot fulfill the commandment to be fruitful and multiply without Eve. So God makes him a helper. Now, let me just explain this term for a moment, but helper is used 19 times in the Old Testament. And 16 of those 19 times, it's used to speak of God. It's used to speak of him in a way that he helps Israel by saving them from their enemies. So when it's used of God, it's always referring to his strength that he's exerting for the benefit of others. Now this word helper might sound like daddy's little helper, mommy's little helper. Sounds demeaning. But in the scriptures, it's actually a term that speaks of competency. And Eve is certainly competent. She lends the man in his tasks her competency. He needs her. So in case you think this need thing is something that the woman compensates for in the man, you see it go the other direction in the passage that we read earlier, that Megan read earlier from Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 says it's the husband's job to love his wife in such a way that she becomes more holy. In other words, a wife should be able to see a direct line from her husband's involvement with her to her own growth and grace. So you see, we need each other. We need the complement. There's a, there's a diversity here. There's difference. But is this what you were expecting when you got married? Whether it was a month ago or decades ago? Did you get married because you knew that your deficiencies needed to be addressed? Did you get married because you were ready to serve your spouse by helping them in their calling? Did you get married because... You wanted to aid them in their sanctification. Well, if that's why you got married, then you're not going to be alarmed when conflict happens. 
You'll see conflict as something good because it means that change is happening in one or both of you. And this change is a growth in holiness. It's a growth in grace. But if you're like me, many of us, this is not why we got married. We got married because we're consumers. We wanted a mutually fulfilling relationship that we could snack on. We didn't realize our marriage was about having a calling to steward creation. We didn't realize that our marriage was about, a career, about helping each other in their careers. It wasn't about having children. It wasn't about serving the church or the neighborhood. You didn't get married because you wanted to make your spouse more holy. But I can promise you, if you'll stay resilient and you stay curious, you'll see that the key to your growth and grace, the key to the effectiveness of your vocation, it will only occur when you embrace the unique differences that your gender offers. And that's diversity. That is what's going to unlock your marriage, is to embrace it. So that's it for diversity, but let's talk about unity, and it flows right out of diversity, actually. The diversity is what makes for a heightened unity. See, a woman and a man are like a marriage. They're like a two-piece puzzle. And the two pieces must be different in order for them to interlock. See, if a puzzle has two pieces that are exactly the same, they won't ever unify. They'll just rub up against one another. And this text says that the two become one flesh. That there's this unity of purpose in their calling to cultivate the earth. There's this unity in calling to procreate. They have a unity of allegiance to God by not eating of the tree. They enjoy the unity of their marriage as their bodies become unified in sex. And this kind of unity is what makes Adam sing. See, the first words that a person speaks in the Bible are a song. It's in verse 23. Adam wakes up from the sleep that God's put him in, and he bursts into jubilation. He's got a shout of ecstasy in verse 23. She's different from all the animals, and he's really glad about that. In fact, although she is different from him, she's also a lot like him. And he says as much when he says, she's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It doesn't take him long to figure out how much better his life is. And when he's coming out of anesthesia, he sees God bring Eve to him. It's very much like a father brings his daughter to the husband in a wedding ceremony. But God is bringing Eve. And as he brings her I'm sure Adam thought, I didn't realize this, but this is what I've been looking for my whole life. And see, their unity as one flesh, it's going to lead to intimacy that's summed up in verse 25. It says that they were naked and unashamed. And this is, speaks to so much more than just sex. It speaks to the entirety of their relationship. Neither, neither of them had any fear of rejection. They had any fear of exploitation. They were at total ease with one another. There was an openness. There was a trust. And as you hear this explained about, I hope it's stoking your longings. Because we all know that a full life is only found in loving, trusting community. We know that we can't fulfill our destiny except in relationships that are characterized by mutual dependence. But then we see the reality of our own lives, don't we? And we're single. 
We don't want to be or we are married. Our marriages don't look like Genesis 2. So what do we do with the longings that this text is stoking and where we actually are? Well, first, let me talk to the single folks. It might be time to do some tough evaluation and ask, why are you single? I mean, really ask. I mean, it it might be. I mean, just maybe it's because you're too picky. You might be expecting Jesus or the female version to become walking along, and that's who you will marry. Maybe you're expecting the wrong things. You're expecting too much from a potential mate. And with each candidate that you come across, you can find something or ten somethings wrong with each one. It's dangerous. Because when this is your posture, you're unintentionally expecting that what needs to happen is someone needs to be brought to you as opposed to you becoming a certain kind of person. But there's another angle for single folks that I've seen play out over the years. Besides just being too picky, I've also seen single people pine after being married so badly that they can't enjoy their present singleness. Now, I know it's very likely in church settings that marriage and parenting, family, it's championed like crazy. I mean, if you want to find a topical series of a church in town that's about family, you're not going to have a hard time finding it. That's all churches are trying to do. When I tell anybody about our church and all these kids, they're like, how have you done it? And I'm like, I don't know. Everybody wants a kid's cove. Everybody wants to attract young families. But here we are, and you're single. But think about it. The founder of our faith was single. The most prolific author of the New Testament was single, Paul. And Paul dedicates a whole chapter making the case for the dignity of singleness in 1 Corinthians 7. And you add all that up and it shows that there are good gifts to be enjoyed as a single person. What if you're married and you hear this whole account of this diversity and this unity, this being naked and unashamed, this openness, this trust, this ease with one another. And it's like a mirror being held up to the state of your marriage and exposes everything that your marriage isn't. And maybe you're thinking, gosh, our marriage isn't about anything. We don't embrace the differences that are afforded in our genders. Our marriage isn't anything remotely outwardly faced. Or you see the song that Adam sings and you're like, man, there's no joy in my marriage. Or you see how available they are to one another and you think, I wish I had that kind of intimacy in our marriage. Well, if that's what you're thinking, look at verse 24. In verse 24, we have very much a formula. And here's what it's saying. It's saying that both parties must leave their parents and cleave to one another and it equals intimacy of this one flesh unity. So do you see the formula? Leaving parents plus cleaving to your spouse equals one flesh, equals unity. It's time to look at the variables. The first one, leaving your parents. Have you really left your parents? I mean, the crazy thing about the first hearers of this text is that the men likely never moved out of their parents' home. When men got married, their wives moved in with the family's husband's or the family of the husband. 
Thus, when it says, leave your parents, it's not talking about physically. It's talking about at a heart level. It's talking about loyalty. And if you're married, you are no longer most loyal to your parents because they've now been trumped by your spouse and your loyalty rankings. So you must be loyal to your spouse and not just your parents. But it's not just about talking, leaving your parents in terms of loyalty. It's also talking about leaving your baggage. The bag is associated with your parents. Now, some of you, you really enjoy your parents. Your parents are very healthy human beings. But most of us don't. We've got a lot of baggage with our parents. There's a lot of pain there. And that pain inevitably shapes who we are as persons. And it changes how we engage with our spouse, usually to the detriment. So the first place to look is, how are you doing with leaving the parents? The next place to look is, how are you doing with cleaving to your spouse? This word cleave, I bet you didn't use it this week. I didn't either. But here's what it means. It means to stick to, like flesh sticks to bone. The image of Velcro should come to mind. And this is talking about, depending on whether in every way, physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, it's possible that you aren't experiencing this kind of unity because you're too independent. You've not cleaved. You're closed off. And that's why there's no intimacy. Now, I don't know. I mean, we could keep evaluating these two factors ad nauseum. There's a lot to talk about there. But here's what I want to say really loud and clear to you married folks. You can only leave your parents. And only you can cleave to your spouse. See, you can't make your spouse leave their parents. You can't make your spouse cleave to you. You can't force intimacy in your marriage. It's just not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to do the work of leaving your parents and cleaving to your spouse and hold out hope that your spouse will do the same. Now, this is all really hard. I knew I was going to be poking the hornet's nest today. I really wanted to skip this text. Because it's so hard. All of us, whether you're single or married, divorced, you need some hope. And here's the hope. The hope is the wedding at the end of the Bible. It's not at the beginning of the Bible. The Bible closes with a wedding, and it's a better version of the wedding you, it's not just a better version of the wedding you had here on earth. In fact, Matthew 22 says that you won't be married in heaven. You're not going to be married to your spouse. You're going to be married to Jesus. Does it make you feel weird to be married to Jesus? I mean, being married to Jesus sounds a lot, maybe a bit too lovey-dovey for most of us. So why does the Bible, from beginning to end, use it as a metaphor to refer to the relationship that God has with his people? It's because he wants you not to just hear that he loves you. He wants you to see it. He wants you not to just know that he loves you, but he wants you to taste it. And what the marriage metaphor of the bride, of Christ being God's people, and Jesus being the bridegroom, what it does is it helps his love go from audio to video. It's the difference between seeing a picture of the beaches of Hawaii and sitting on the beaches of Hawaii, feeling the warm sand, listening to the crash of the waves, seeing the clear blue water, smelling the salt in the air. That's the difference. 
See, think about it. Jesus is married to you, and he's married to me. I mean, that means that Jesus is in the longest-lived, worst marriage in the history of the world. I mean, we're, we're, no, we're just as bad as the ungrateful Israelites in the Old Testament. We're just as bad as those thick-skulled disciples. We're just as clueless as those churches at the beginning of Revelation. See, Jesus has never had a people who were as committed to him as he was to them. How can Jesus stick it out in this marriage? How does his love remain faithful even when we are unfaithful? Here's how. Jesus has a ton of it. Jesus' love never runs out. He's like a gorged river. It's pent up and it's ready to gush forth at you at just a timid request. So in the midst of your tough marriage, in the midst of your painful divorce, in the midst of your maddening singleness, know that you have a wedding on the horizon. I've been reading this book. It's like uh, uh, number two after uh, Gentleman Lowly, the same author, writes another book called Deeper. And there's just a quote in here. I read it late last night, and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to read it. I read a book to the Nesbitts last week, their baptism. I'm going to read you all something. It's from Jonathan Edwards. Here we go. This is so good. They that find Christ, though he be so glorious and excellent a person, yet they find him ready to receive such poor, worthless, hateful creatures as they are, which was unexpected to them. They're surprised with it. They did not imagine that Christ was such a kind of person, a person of such grace. They heard he was a holy savior and he hated sin and they did not imagine that he be so ready to receive such vile, wicked creatures as they. They thought he surely would never be willing to accept such provoking sinners, such guilty wretches, those that had such abominable hearts. But behold... He is not a whit the more backward to receive them for that. They unexpectedly find him with open arms to embrace them, ready forever to forget all their sins as though they had never been. They find that as it were runs, that he as it were runs to meet them, makes them most welcome and admits them not only to be his servants, but his spouse. He lifts them out of the dust and sets them on his throne He makes them children of God. He speaks peace to them. He cheers and refreshes their hearts. He admits them unto strict union with himself. And he gives them the most joyful entertainment and binds himself to them to be their spouse forever. So they are surprised with their entertainment. They never imagined to find Christ, a person of such kind of love and grace as this, is beyond all imagination and conception. Brother and sister, Jesus loves you. He loves you enough that he's married to you. The vile and wretch we are. Let's pray. Father, would you uh, implant in our imaginations the wedding that is to come. And uh, Lord, move us. Give us great hope. And all the pain we are experiencing as people have been divorced, people in tough marriages, people who are single. Uh, Lord, help us uh, yearn for the wedding that is to come. We pray this in your name. Amen.